The Honorables, the Presiding Chief Judge, and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good morning, welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Chris Dill and I'll be presiding today. To my right is Judge Donna Strauss and my left is Judge Michael Statting. Uh, we have one case on for, for today and so if in the case is Cox, versus Sadanda, say the name right. Sadanda Cox. Sadanda Cox, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, thank you so much. We have one case on the counter, and so we're ready to hear from the appellant, but just want to remind everybody, uh, this, the record and everything was filed under seal, so please don't say anything that would identify, because the hearing is, is being publicly broadcasted. Make sure you don't say anything that would be identifying so people would know who, who we're talking about. So, ready to hear from the appellant. And let me know if you want to reserve any time for uh, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Good morning, and may it please the court. Troy Shelton on behalf of Mrs. Empson. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case should have been dismissed at the outset four years ago. Without dispute, Mrs. Empson is a fit mother. The trial court agreed that Cody is thriving in her exclusive care, and she never relinquished her child to Mr. Cox. Those undisputed findings are enough to resolve this case. Mr. Cox has no basis to claim custody of Mrs. Empson's child. His claim is barred Let by the- Let me ask, this case wasn't about, as I recall, the order didn't determine <coughs> anything about unfitness. It was acting inconsistently with her constitutionally protected rights as a parent, right? That's right, Your Honor. There are multiple grounds for overcoming a constitutional right, and fitness was not disputed. Right. And so it's, it's only an inconsistency question in this okay. case. Um, Mr. Cox's claim is barred by the state and federal constitutions, but to be clear, uh, we have raised three other grounds for reversal as well, and if we're correct on any of those grounds and you agree with us, then reversal is warranted. By contrast, uh, Mr. Cox has to run the table to prevail on appeal. My intent today is to start with the constitutional question of Mrs. Empson's parental rights and then continue on to the other issues. I'm happy to defer to the court and the panel um, if you'd like for me to move on and address some other issue. Uh, one, one question I have to start with, and it, maybe I just missed it, um, because obviously a lot has gone on in this case. Um, but there, there obviously was a biological father. Yes, Your Honor. At some point. What, were those rights ever terminated? What was, what was it, whatever happened with that father? His rights were terminated. The TPR order um, from the, I suppose it was the district court is part of the record. Okay. I don't have the citation at okay. hand. All right, very good. I just, yeah, I just wasn't sure if I remembered exactly where that was. Yes, he, he's otherwise out of the picture. Okay, very good. Uh, turning first to the parental rights, the order on Mrs. Simpson's constitutional rights should be reversed. Mr. Cox doesn't dispute the most obvious defect in the order, that the trial court didn't apply the clear and convincing standard. That alone requires reversal. And because the original Does judge- Does that require reversal or would that just be vacation, vacate and send it back? It normally requires just vacator, though of course there would be more involved in this case than the average case because the original judge who entered the order is no longer a judge. So it'll have to be a whole new trial um, from the beginning on that issue. It's not just a matter of adding, you know. None of the orders contain the language, even, even the prior order where, the, where the, I think it was the judge is no longer a judge. 
that, that early in the record, she's not. She's no longer a judge. You're talking about her. She's she's no longer a judge. She used a clear and convincing standard. She never mentioned. She it. never. She never. So none of the, the, the neither the order being appealed, the, the current one or the prior order, neither one of them uses that language. No orders, Your Honor, use that language. Uh, but but our hope today is that the court will go further than merely vacating the order because under any evidentiary standard, Mrs. Simpson didn't forfeit her constitutional rights. And Mrs. Simpson has already incurred hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees in this case. We hope that this case will end. Parents have a fundamental right under the state and federal constitutions to the exclusive care, custody, and control of their children. The law presumes that natural parents will act in the best interest of their children. And before the state can take over decision-making from a natural parent, the state must have a compelling justification. The state can't interfere with the parent-child relationship unless the parent is an abuser, is unfit, or has otherwise acted inconsistently with the child's best interests. As I mentioned with Judge Stroud earlier, that's what this case is about, the, that latter standard. This case, however, I believe presents one of the most extreme examples of interference in the parent-child relationship that has ever been agreed with by the trial court and then come to this court. This court and the Supreme Court have held that in cases like these, a parent hasn't acted inconsistently with her constitutional rights unless she has one, relinquished custody to a third party, and two, ceded parental authority to the third party. But here, the trial court found as a fact that Mrs. Simpson never relinquished Cody to Mr. Cox. Mr. Cox doesn't dispute that finding. That finding is at record page 34, paragraph 25. And the evidence showed unequivocally that Mrs. Simpson did not cede parental authority to Mr. Cox. Mrs. Simpson decided where Cody would spend time, where he went to school, what he ate, what his religion would be. Mr. Cox requested a visitation schedule. She denied it. There was never a co-parenting relationship between these two. Alternatively, the trial court's order does not satisfy the strict, strict scrutiny. Without a doubt, parental rights are fundamental rights under the, the state and federal constitutions. And the government can abridge a fundamental right only if strict scrutiny is satisfied. Now, most jurisdictions across the country recognize this point and apply strict scrutiny to parental rights. I would point this court to a helpful example at Jones v. Jones, which was a Utah Supreme Court case cited in our brief. Other courts, however, or, sorry, our courts, however, have never been asked to determine whether strict scrutiny applies to parental rights, and if it does, how it applies in the third-party custody context. But most other states have held that strict scrutiny requires proof that the parent is unfit or that the child will suffer severe harm if visitation or custody with a third party is denied. This court should hold that strict scrutiny applies and that it was not satisfied here. The trial court found as a fact that after Cody's contact with Mr. Cox was cut off, that Cody began thriving. That's record page 247, paragraph seven. That finding means strict scrutiny could never be satisfied. Cody benefited from the removal of Mr. Cox from his life, and there's no evidence that he suffered harm. We've essentially run an experiment in this case. Mr. Cox hasn't seen the child since January of 2020. And I think you were using the child's name there. I'm sorry, Your Honor. You accidentally used the child's name. I'm sorry, Your Honor. So, I know it's hard. Let's go with the child. The child. <laughs> There are multiple children, but there's only one child that's a matter uh, in dispute here. Um, and for, for that additional reason, um, strict scrutiny uh, is an additional reason that this court can and, and may reverse the order on Mrs. Empson's constitutional rights. And there's no need to merely vacate the order and remand for anything else 
before the trial court. How much does how much does the trial court weigh? Because you do have some facts that tend to show that that there was a co-parenting relationship. That he's on the birth certificate. The, the child bears the same last name. I mean, a lot of things going to you know, health insurance, all this other stuff. So, where's that? Where, where do we come into play as far as weighing what's more important, what's not more important? Well, first of all, there's no finding that there was a co-parenting relationship. There's no finding that she gave uh, parental authority uh, to Mr. Cox. I mean, that's the that's the finding that's required. Did she cede parental authority? And our position is the facts are absolutely clear. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of text messages between these parties. We have put those in the record and we have cited them in our brief. You can look at them yourself. When she says there is no co this is not a co-parenting relationship, that is unequivocal. And that's a statement that's being made contemporaneous before a complaint was filed. And this court in Estroff versus Chatterjee said what the parent's intent is, is uh, almost controlling. And it was undisputed what Mrs. Uh, uh, Empson's um, uh, intent was um, in the middle of this relationship before there was ever litigation. If there are no other questions on the constitutional question, I'm going to turn next to the issue of Mr. Cox's standing. Uh, Mr. Cox had the burden of proving his standing in this case, like any other plaintiff, and to have standing, he had to prove that he had a parent-child relationship uh, with the child um, when he filed his complaint. But he can't make that showing because the relationship had already ended by the time he filed his complaint. When he filed the complaint, was he on the birth certificate? He was on the birth certificate. Is there a presumption that and is there, and he, the child was born when they were married or was the child born when they were not married? Were they married? The, the trial court actually found that presumption was overcome because Mr. Cox admitted that he was not the biological father. That's never been a disputed fact. Mr. Cox has always known he was not the biological father of this child. When he married Mrs. Simpson, he already knew that this was someone else's child. So, and that, that time, that history had passed. After that, the parties divorced. He didn't file a custody claim. He was adjudicated guilty of domestic violence against Cody and Mr. Cox, and a domestic violence protective order was entered against him. So this case is ultimately like Chavez versus Wadlington. After, in that case, um, uh, after same-sex partners had separated, uh, the third party evicted um, the, the natural parent and the children, and then the children were unwilling to continue to have a relationship with the third party. And this court held that by the time that the third party custody complaint was filed a year after the eviction, that there was no longer a parent-child relationship. Here, any parent-child relationship between uh, Mr. Cox and the child ended in summer 2019. The trial court found as a fact that Cody, excuse me, the child and Mr. Cox stopped having meaningful contact in summer 2019. That's at record page 247, paragraph six. Mr. Cox, however, didn't file his complaint until a year later in May of 2020. And it's also undisputed that the child here is unwilling to resume a relationship with Mr. Cox, just like the children in Chavez. And when the complaint was filed, the child already had a father-child relationship with his new stepfather, Andrew Empson, who's waiting in the wings to adopt the child. And in fact, I believe that the adoption proceeding is being held today in, in Oklahoma. It's clear from the order itself that it's deficient. The standing order doesn't even find as a fact that a parent-child relationship existed on the day the complaint was filed. In fact, part of the order says that the relationship continued, quote, until January of 2020, which was four months 
before the complaint was filed. That's record page 33, paragraph 12. The trial court made sufficient findings about standing, but made sufficient findings to show that standing didn't exist. Because the orders themselves find that the relationship ended before the complaint was filed, the court should hold that Mr. Cox lacked standing in order of dismissal. I'll turn next to the issue of UCCJA, subject matter jurisdiction under that act. The court predicated its jurisdiction on what's called home state jurisdiction, which is set out in section 58-201A1 of the general statutes. For a court to have home state jurisdiction, a child must have had a continual physical presence in the state of North Carolina for the six month period immediately preceding the filing of the complaint. That is not the standard that was applied by the trial court. First, the trial court looked at residency and citizenship of the various people involved instead of where the child was physically present. But as virtually every UCCJA jurisdiction is held, and for, I believe 49 of 50 states are UCCJA jurisdictions, it's error for a trial court to base home state jurisdiction on residency and citizenship. Those are legal terms of art that turn on intent. But the UCCJA expressly rejects a subjective standard. It adopts an objective standard and just asks, where is the kid living? Those, that's the language, the plain language of the statute. If the, child had not been, if the child has not been living in the same state for the last six months, previous six months, does the child have no home state for purposes of, of if you're gonna try to invoke jurisdiction based on home state? That's right. Yes, Your Honor. Well, there are also situations where temporary absences from the home state have not been held to destroy that. <coughs> so. That can be the case. The trial court didn't make any findings of temporary absences. Mr. Cox never argued uh, about temporary absences, didn't argue it to the trial court, didn't argue it to this court. So I believe that argument's been waived. I mean, that's sort of like an exception that has to be found. Um, and I don't believe that the trial court could have made that finding. Um, the trial court's findings of fact, if Mr. Cox doesn't challenge, prove that Cody wasn't continuously here for the six month period immediately preceding the filing of the complaint. In January 2020, the trial court found Mrs. Simpson began the process of taking the child out of North Carolina with her to Oklahoma, Minnesota, and Tennessee. It's record page 34, paragraph 29. In February 2020, the trial court found the child was physically in Oklahoma. That's record page 28, paragraph 5. And then from March to April 2020, the child was physically in Tennessee. That's record page 28, paragraph but 5. the court found that the child was a resident of North Carolina. Is that? It uses the language residency, which does that, is. Does that imply then there's, there's your, your, the intent is that you're just temporarily out of the state and your intent is to return, so it would be just a, it would be a temporary absence? No, because residency and citizenship are their own, those are distinct, those are legal terms that have a distinct meaning. For example, someone remains a resident somewhere until they, they finally get to their resting place. But the trial court couldn't find that Cody, excuse me, the child was essentially temporarily absent for you know, four or five months before the complaint was filed. I travel to Oklahoma or something, I'm still a resident of North Carolina because you would say I'm a resident because I have an intent to return, I would think. If I've moved to Oklahoma, I'm no longer a resident of North Carolina. I'm just saying by using the word resident is a court implying that that the child was, was just away temporarily and was gonna come back. Well, I find that- That was a finding they made. I mean, whether there's evidence to support, that's a different story, but- I don't, I don't think that's sufficient. I think that's, that's contradicted by the findings that were made, which find that Mrs. Empson was moving out of the state of North Carolina. It's undisputed that she was leaving and taking the child with her to permanently move out of the state. Everyone, everyone agrees that that, that was 
That was why she and the child were not here, because they were in the process of moving away. And so the child was not physically here um, for anything close to uh, the six month period. It looks like the child was not here for most of the immediate, um, immediately preceding six month period. Therefore, um, the motion to dismiss should have been uh, allowed uh, because there was no home state jurisdiction here. I'd like to turn next to our last issue on appeal, which is best interests. Mr. Cox has declined uh, to defend the trial court's best interest determination, and the trial court got best interest wrong uh, for at least three reasons. First, the custody order did not give special weight to Mrs. Empson's wishes. In Alexander versus Alexander, in an opinion authored uh, by Chief Judge Dillon, this court held that an order granting visitation to third parties is unconstitutional unless the custody order presumes that the natural parent's decision for the child is correct. Here, the custody order recognized Mrs. Simpson's wishes, but it did not presume, presume that her decision was correct uh, to end the relationship um, between the child and Mr. Cox. That was error under Alexander. Second, the order gave no weight to uh, the child's wishes either. Uh, this child is a teenager and it's undisputed that he never wants to see Mr. Cox again. The trial court failed to explain why it's in this child's best interest to force him to visit with a man that he's not even related to. Wasn't there a finding that the child would be okay visiting with a, with a person, with a man? No, the, no, Your Honor, there, there is no finding to that effect. Finally, the trial court didn't find that the child would benefit from visitation uh, with Mr. Cox or that this child would be harmed if visitation with Mr. Cox was denied. Instead, it found the opposite, that Cody began thriving after, that after Mr. Cox was removed from his life. In fact, both of the experts in this case agreed that visitation would harm this child, and there was no contrary evidence before the court. It is ultimately irrational to say that visitation is in this child's best interest to visit with Mr. Cox if there is no evidence that this child will benefit from that visitation. Instead, the trial court's order reads as if the trial court mistakenly believed that it was required to give some kind of visitation to Mr. Cox. Of course, that is not the law. Now, I acknowledge it's the rare case um, that a trial court abuses its discretion and this court reverses um, at the best interest stage. I believe this is the rare case. There is no way to make sense of the best interest determination. Mrs. Simpson doesn't want this relationship to continue. The child doesn't want the relationship to continue. The experts agreed that continuing the relationship would harm the child. There was absolutely no evidence on the other side of the scale. And I believe that the order should be reversed. If there are no other questions, I'll rest early and turn it over um, to opposing counsel. Let me ask you a quick question, because you mentioned the Alexander case, and I'm trying to remember it, because I think I relied a lot on what the U.S. Supreme Court had talked about. Do you have to make a finding that the parent, is there a way that a third party could get visitation, is it possible, without a finding that the parent has acted inconsistent with their constitutional rights? Abuse and, abuse and neglect of the child, um, those are sort of subsumed within the That was a grandparent case where I'm just trying to remember that the facts of that case, and I'm just trying to remember what Justice O'Connor talked about. But she seemed like, if I remember, there was a window where you could, if you made the right findings, you could 
you could say as long as it didn't interfere with the with the parent's constitutional rights to raise a child. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to get there, but. That, that, so that was a grandparent visitation case, so it is a little bit different in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court in the Troxel decision, which was a plurality decision. The plurality right. was written um, by Justice O'Connor. Um, that's what Your Honor was relying on, Alexander, when it says if a parent is fit, you have to give, their, you have to give special deference to the fit parents. That, that's the language of, of the court um, in, in Troxel was fit. It's not about inconsistency. The U.S. Supreme Court has never said this inconsistency, has never approved of this inconsistency standard. Right. I under, you know, that, that's a separate argument. I'm not here to, to say that, okay. that that's not the law. Um, not, not the law as applies to this case, at least. Um, but uh, th that's how things shook out in Troxel, and I believe that Your, Your Honor was, was faithfully applying Troxel in the Alexander decision. So if there are no other questions, I'll reserve the, the rest of my time for rebuttal. May it please the court, my name is Jody Foyles. I represent Mr. John Cox, the plaintiff appellee in this matter. At the trial level, the trial court appointed Ms. Craven Gatlin on its own motion to conduct a child and family evaluation. Ms. Gatlin, after meeting with all the parties, interviewing the child, talking to a therapist who had met the child, and reviewing the extensive documents in this case, gave the following testimony. When the child was born, the parties made an arrangement that they would raise the child as husband and wife and treat the child as though the plaintiff is the biological father. The acts of Mr. Cox and Ms. Empson led this child to believe Mr. Cox was his dad. He called him dad. Ms. Empson also called him dad to both the child and his little brother. In numerous text messages, they talked candidly about their babies and their future. This relationship, she goes on to testify, was fostered by Ms. Empson for Mr. Cox to provide care, physical care, financial support, care for her children, which indicated that the relationship was much more than a babysitting arrangement between she and the plaintiff. This child has known one father his, his entire life up through the fine of this complaint. That's the person he called dad and the person that was listed on his birth certificate. This child was provided health insurance up through the date after the complaint was filed by Mr. Cox. This child believed Mr. Cox to be his father until after this complaint was filed. Throughout that child's Throughout his childhood, up through the fine of the complaint in 2020, the appellant referred to him as his dad, not only to the child, but to third parties, as well as on school forms, letting the father sit in on school meetings, citing documents as his father, listing him as head of household. Now, let me, let me ask, so um, how do we deal with the fact that there is not the standard of review, clear, cogent, convincing evidence stated in the order? Aaron, I, Judge McSweeney, I, the previous judge is no longer on the bench who did the September 20 orders, but Judge McSweeney heard the same evidence essentially in the August 2022 hearing, and it's my contention that if that is a problem, the court can send that back to Judge McSweeney uh, to to make findings of fact, to determine whether these findings of fact are made by clear, cogent, convincing evidence. The uh, parties 
lived together for approximately 13 months before Mr. Cox was deployed. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Army. Uh, during the deployment, unfortunately, the marriage fell apart. But even afterwards, they continued that relationship. Mr. Cox was never found guilty of domestic violence. There was a domestic violence order entered against him in which he was alleged or was found by a trial court to have shoved the mother and have to grab the child out of his hands. That's it. There's no finding of guilty against him in any manner. In 2016, up through uh, fall of 2019, the child lived with Mr. Cox at first in 1617 on a every weekend, every other weekend basis. He spent the summers of 16, 17, 18, all with Mr. Cox, spent half of the summer of 2019 with Mr. Cox. In the 2017-18 school year, 2018-19 school year, the child lived with Mr. Cox. He celebrated Thanksgiving and Christmas with Mr. Cox and his family. Mr. Cox has three biological children. He talks about them to Ms. Gatlin as though they, were his, they are his siblings. He believed them to be his siblings. He wrote school projects in which he referred to them as his siblings. This was encouraged by the appellant in this matter. The trial court in the September 2020 order found that the regular contact between Mr. Cox and, Co and the child ended in October of 2019. He last saw the child uh, in January of 2020. At the same time where the, Ms. Emms' relationship with her current husband <clears throat> was starting to, to move forward. We had a trial. The case was scheduled for permanent custody in August of 22. The appellant moved to continue that. Judge McSweeney allowed that continuance, but put it on for temporary child custody. In December of 2022, Judge McSweeney entered a temporary custody order. He entered that order without prejudice to either party, put it in that it was a temporary order. He ordered the parties to go to reunification, to reunification therapy, including the minor child. He said he gave Mr. Cox some visitation with the minor child, some telephonic communication, and said during the pendency of this litigation, arrangements to set this up can be made to their respective attorneys. Is, is it a temporary order since there wasn't a, a, a time to, for, for there to be a callback? Your Honor, it's my contention that the, when you look at the order and a lot of orders that are entered, it's not so much that there's a, a date where the, for, for them to come back on the order, it's how long did the parties take to get this matter back for hearing. In the Center v. Center case that this court rendered in 2003, this court found that uh, a time of 20 months was not unreasonable. And it quoted, or uh, from, it, relied on the Lavallee and Brewer cases. In quoting Center, it was said that Lavallee and Brewer further provided that where neither party sets the matter for a hearing, within a reasonable time, the temporary order is converted into a final order. If the rule is that every case, every temporary order has to have a return date, then in a, if a case comes back on an ex parte order, and you're hearing this case within two weeks of the complaint being filed, the trial judge, as often happens, dissolves the temporary order and enters a temp uh, dissolves the ex parte order and enters a temporary order. Doesn't give a return date. Parties haven't been to mediation, and in a lot of counties, certainly in Moore County, you can't get a trial date until you've been through mediation, and just sets it and then the order stays in place. The parties get it on for hearing six months later. 
which in Moore County is good, given our, 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 our schedule. At that point, the judge then enters a permanent order. Under the theory that the judge had to give a return date in his temporary order to keep it temporary, then the losing party, the party who didn't like the order, could then appeal to this court and say, that order should be vacated and should be set aside because they had to show a substantial change of circumstances since the temporary order. But even though it's temporary, you're not arguing that this case, this appeal is not properly before us. I am. Oh, you are. Okay. I am. And I think the, the issue, I, I, A, I think it's a temporary order. I think it's clearly a temporary order. And, and that the not putting a return date on it doesn't make it automatically a permanent order for the reasons I just argued. I also contend to the court that it does not affect a substantial right. And looking at that, and you, you have the case that the council handed up after, it's just come down from this court, the Manus v. Carnegie case. And in that, this court uh, ruled that any order which eliminated the fundamental right of a parent to make decisions concerning the care, custody, control of his children affects a substantial right. And an appeal from such an order is properly before this court pursuant to NCGS 1-277A. Now, as that reads, I would concede that that appears to say that's a substantial right, so that any temporary order where a third party gets any kind of custody rights, visitation rights to a child is then immediately appealable, even though it is temporary. But in that case, I would contend to the court that it cited N. Ray Shuler, which was an adoption proceeding in which the putative father filed a motion to dismiss the, the, adoptive, the, the, the adoption. The court denied it, and then the court uh, moved on with the adoption. Father immediately appealed, and the court ruled that was a substantial right because, A, it's an adoption, and once that adoption goes through, he has no rights whatsoever. But I would contend there was no finding at the trial court level that the father was unfit, neglected the welfare of the child, or that he had waived some sort of protected status. Now, he may have, and I think that was, but, but at any rate, there was no finding of that. Well, in this case, though, we have um, the, the temporary custody order is, is one thing, uh, but then the, the previous orders that were done, those are not interlocutory. The, the order addressing the um, constitutional rights, the order addressing jurisdiction. The September 2020 orders. Right, the previous orders. Well, I mean, it, they, they are interlocutory. They don't resolve the they case. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't, they would be, they're, I guess that they'd be different than the temporary custody order. The, the, well, I, right, I, they're, they're certainly different than the temporary custody order, but they didn't, they didn't appeal that order within the time period after it was entered. They waited until the December 2022 order. So if it's interlocutory, they could wait until... Correct. Or if it's not, they couldn't or would have to show substantial right. Correct. Okay. The, and the other case was the Graham v. Jones that was cited in the Manus case. In Graham v. Jones, mother was found to be fit and, and, and had the right to raise her children, but yet the court still gave grandparents visitation. And that case, of course, was immediately, appeal, immediately appealable because after due process, the mother had been found fit. And, and any taking away of that is a substantial right, any of, of her say of who the child can be with. In our case, of course, on two separate occasions, mother was found to have waived her constitutionally protected status as, as it relates to Mr. Cox. The other um, reason that the appellant argued in their brief was the McConnell v. McConnell case in which the trial court found the child was exposed to substantial risk of sexual abuse, and they point to this case. I think it's important to note that in this case, this trial court has found no risk of substantial abuse. That 
In this case, as in McConnell case, due process was held, a hearing was held, and the court found that. After a hearing in this matter, the court did not find that. Um, and the, in addition to that, Your Honor, uh, go, moving on to the home state of the minor child under the UCCJEA, uh, pursuant to 58-201, a child's home state is the state in which a child lived with a parent or a person acting as a parent for at least six consecutive months immediately before the commencement of a child custody proceeding. As I've stated before, uh, our, count, our court complaint was filed on May 11, 2020. The trial court in the September 2020 order found the defendant appellant and the minor child were citizens and residents of Moore County until May 20, 2020. That is a finding of fact that is, that is supported by competent evidence. So citizen and resident is one thing but physical presence, what were the findings on physical presence? Your Honor, I, the, and I'll go through that right now, that the court, uh, Ms. Empson's testimony in the matter was that she lived in Southern Pines until November of 19, Moore County, until Vass of February. We have, uh, according to Scotland Christian Academy, the records that are in the court and, and the record on appeal, the child was in school at, the, at, at Scotland Christian Academy of February 27, 2020. On March 30th, 2020, Ms. Simpson applied for a marriage license in Harnett County in which she represented her address to be in Moore County, North Carolina. Her husband was stationed at Fort Bragg up until June of 2020 and was not scheduled to go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky until July of 2020. In her Tennessee petition, she filed a petition in Tennessee pertaining to the adoption of the children and the termination of parental rights for the youngest child. In that, she filed it on May 20th, nine days after we filed our complaint. She alleges the child to be a citizen and resident of the state of Tennessee for the last six months. She acknowledges in her testimony that that's inaccurate. The judge stops the proceedings and advises her of her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, and she blames it on her attorney. Ironically, the very petition she filed in Tennessee on May 19th, 2020, is notarized by a Cumberland County, North Carolina notary because that's where she was when she signed the petition. The judge found, I would contend the finding of fact by the judge in which she found that, the, that they were citizens and residents, the residents part referring they were living in North Carolina until May 20th of 2020 based on the testimony that was presented. That's the earliest they could tell that they moved to Tennessee. We don't doubt they moved to Tennessee then. We don't doubt they're living in Oklahoma now. But based on that evidence that was presented, that the trial courts, that, that finding of fact was supported by competent evidence. So you're saying that finding of fact is essentially a finding of physical presence, but it doesn't use the word. It doesn't, well, it's, it says, I would contend when the court was saying resident at that time, that means that's where they were living. We had testimony that was presented in her notary that's in the court record. They were present on May 19, 2020 when she did that in, more, in, in North Carolina and they signed it in front of a Cumberland County attorney. So I, I think, you know, not, I'm not expecting what the judge was thinking, but when I read the order, when it was drafted and the order was given in open court, is that they were living here. They were living in North Carolina until um, May 20th, 2020. At the time Mr. Cox filed this complaint, he had a parent-child relationship with the minor child. Uh, appellant continues to say that it had been a year since he had seen the child or been involved in the child's life when he filed on May 11, 2020. First of all, the child lived with Mr. Cox for the 2018-19 school year. Nobody disputes that. 
That would have taken him up through May and June. The second, uh, the child, nobody disputes the child spent five weeks in the summer of 2019 with Mr. Cox. When it was time for the child to go back to school, Mr. Cox, on his own, without Miss Simpson, took him to his first day of school, paid school fees, paid for the school uniform, and there's pictures of text messages where they sent mom pictures of it. He continued to financially support the child through December of 2019, went on a school field trip with the child in December of 2019. I would agree that the court found in October of 2020 was when the relationship started, stopped being as consistent. The last time he saw the child, of course, was in January of 2020. So I said October of 19, I'm sorry if I said that before. The, uh, and the court addresses Chavez directly in the order in which it's, when the court finds that the, in the September 2020 order, that the court finds this distinguishable from the case law handed up by counsel for defendant. The relationship has been continuous, not only since birth, but more particularly since 2016 until now. And unlike the case handed up by the defendant in which the plaintiff had not seen the children for a year and evicted the children from their mother from her own residence. Obviously in the Chavez case, the mother, the plaintiff was not a sympathetic character when she self-helped and evicted the children and the, mom, and the biological mom from the house. And that was done some 17 months prior to her filing this complaint and had not seen the child within 17 months. We also have to remember when we look at this case, in March of 2020, the world shut down. And it certainly shut down down in the Sand Hills of North Carolina. And so the reason we view each case on a case-by-case -case basis, facts like that, situations like that, have to be taken into consideration. But yet Mr. Cox still filed the complaint in May 11th of 2020 when the court system was at a halt or very close to a halt or just coming back from the pandemic. It's our contention that under, that Mr. Cox had a parent-child relationship on the day he filed. He alleges that in his complaint. He put sufficient allegations forward to, to, to establish that. And he also uh, alleged in his complaint that mother had waived her protected status in regards to allowing him to be the father to this child. Um, and we do contend that she did waive her, her constitutionally protected status. Again, this is viewed on a case-by-case -case basis. A third party does not have to prove that the parent has committed bad acts to show a parent has acted inconsistent with their protected status. And the question before this court on any of these third party cases is did the parent choose to allow that family unit to flourish in a relationship of love and duty with no expectations that it would be terminated? And when you look at the interview with Ms. Gatlin that this child gave and you look at uh, the testimony that Ms. Gatling gave. This child was very disturbed by the fact that the person he thought was his dad is not his dad. And he's disturbed that he didn't know that until after this complaint was filed. And he's angry. And the trial court found that the perception of this child is greatly, if not wholly, influenced by one person. And that's the mother. And that's the emotional abuse the trial court refers to in the case. In the Troxel case, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, declined to consider whether the Due Process Clause requires all non-parental visitation statutes to include a showing of harm or potential harm to a child as a conditioned precedent to granted visitation. However, the Mason case from this court, in quoting the, or in referring to the Troxel case, said the following, encouraging a child to view a third party as a parent 
and to develop a parent-child bond with that person with expectation that it would continue and then severing that relationship cannot be viewed as benign conduct. Looking at the Mason case, which we contend is on point for Mr. Cox, there's a number of factors this court can consider. One, both plaintiff and defendant jointly decided to create a family unit. Testimony is undisputed when they got married that Ms. Simpson was pregnant with the child. They agreed at that time to raise this child together as, as mother and father. Uh, the child, his, uh, Mr. Cox's name was placed on the child's birth certificate. The child was given his surname, other things that the, that the court, Mason court looks at. Defendant intentionally identified plaintiff as parent. She did that throughout. The child thought it was his parent up until after the complaint was filed. He came to school meetings as though he was the parent. He signed the child up for extracurricular activities. You'll see the pictures in the record on appeal where he had the child sign up for football. He paid for that. He took them to practice. He made that decision to do that. The plaintiff participated in the pregnancy and birth of the child. Again, Mr. Cox testified to that. No one disputes that he was there, that he did whatever dads do during that process. Uh, they functioned together as a family for unit for four years, referring to the Mason case. And after the relationship between them ended, the defendant allowed the plaintiff the functional equivalent of custody for three years. In this case, we have 15 months where they live together as a family. Mr. Cox then has to go due to his military duties. Even afterwards, despite some problems that they had, Cody maintained contact with Mr. Cox. And then in 2016, Mr. Cox, they got on a normal, more normal routine where he was seeing the child every weekend to every other weekend. In 17, 18, 18, 19, he was, for all, for all aspects, the primary custodian. He was raising this child on a day-to-day -day basis, going to uh, meetings, meeting with teachers, signing school forms. Um, even the, the appellant listed Mr. Cox's son as the child's brother who could pick the child up from school. That's listed on the school form. Um, defendant encouraged, fostered, and facilitated emotional and psychological bond between the plaintiff and the child. We contend that continued. She did that the child's entire life up until the fall of 2019 when she began to pull the child back. Plaintiff provided care and financial support for the child. Throughout the testimony, it's, it's uncontradicted. Uh, Mr. Cox provided financially. Ms. Craven Gatlin finds he, find he provided financially, paying school fees, helping with tuition, helping with uniforms. Well, there's, some, there's evidence in there that that the, that the mother, Ms. Jensen, sent text messages saying that this is not a permanent thing. I'm the parent and you're not the parent. When did that start? That started in the fall of 2019. As Ms. Simpson was pulling away, I think Mr. Cox could sense that, uh, and I think at that time she was getting more serious with the individual she's now married to based on her testimony, that uh, that's when that occurred. In that same series of text messages, she said, she says the child loves you. You need, and, and just paraphrasing, but the child, you need to be a part of his life. It's important that you're a part of his life. So while at that time, she does say, hey, I'm the parent, I'm calling the shots, there's nothing from prior to that date going back to 16 where she did that. In fact, she happily conceded primary custody for a number of years to, to Mr. Cox. She left in the summer of 18, or sometime in 18, unannounced to anyone, even her job, she left for Russia. Went to Russia for several weeks, didn't tell the, uh, Mr. Cox, didn't tell the child. Child didn't notice because the child was living with him. She, again, she was able to do that based on the fact that 
He was the co-parent. He was the, the person at the time raising the child. Um, looking at other factors for Mason, plaintiff provided care and financial support for the child. I think I just went over that. The child considered the plaintiff to be a parent. Uh, again, I've gone over that already. Plaintiff and defendant shared decision-making authority with respect to the child. And this is a, one of the issues that's been in dispute. I would tell the court, A, that Mr. Cox, the testimony was, um, I think during the summer of 2020 hearings, that in fact he did sign the child up for sports. I'm sure he checked with Ms. Simpson. I don't doubt that. They, they made that decision as anybody co-parenting does. But he also attended IEP meetings for the child. Meetings Ms. Simpson didn't attend. T t explain this to me. Okay, so the, the court still has to uh, make the best interest analysis. Um, tell me the findings that support that, because they don't seem, all the findings as of the day of the hearing or, or when the order was entered, child is thriving. So what are, what are the findings in the to support that the court either didn't abuse of discretion or whatever in saying so, the best interest of the child is to allow this visitation four years later? So the court, the court found as a, a finding that the, the child had a parent-child relationship. The child had a parent-child relationship with with the plaintiff. Uh, and I, looking at the uh, 2020 orders that were entered, the court goes through those and and the things that he did for the child that they, he had, that the child had been living with him for a period of time. And of course, this is happening happening approximately one year or less than one year after they had separated or that the child had been pulled from him or from his life. Um, the court found that he had uh, provided uh, financially, had done all this stuff for him, had been raising the child on a day-to-day -day basis. And at that time, when we had the July 2020 hearing, there was no allegations uh, of abuse. There was no allegation the child didn't want to see him. And I think that's important to note that when you're looking at the perception of the child or what has happened, and this is what Judge McSweeney refers to in his order, not until November of 2020 did this issue that Mr. Cox had done some sort of inappropriate conduct with the child. Not until they had lost both motions to dismiss and we were trying to move forward to a temporary custody hearing. At that time, uh, this allegation, Ms. Uh, Empson comes forward and says, this child has made an allegation or disclosure to a therapist in Tennessee. And at that point, uh, only later did, from Ms. Craven-Gatlin did we find out that what she represented that uh, disclosure to be was not true. That in fact, the only thing the child had told the therapist in Tennessee was that the child made statements alluding to self-harm, and then at one point the appellant shoved him in the chest. Um, but based on that, and based on when you look at Judge McSweeney's order, and again, I think when Judge McSweeney, I know when he drafted the order, he drafted it as a temporary order. But he found there that the child's perception of Mr. Cox at this point has been greatly affected by the mother. And this, this is, is where based on a hearing that took place in August of 22. August of 22. So as of August 22, there has to be findings to support it's in the, I, that the judge believes it's in the best interest to give temporary custody to Mr. Cox. And so that's what I was asking as of that day. So the, the, in the 2022 order, I can look at that real quick. The judge, uh, I mean, he's in a tough spot for a couple of reasons. A, the child hasn't seen the and Mr. Cox for some period of time. Based on the interviews the child had gave in which he basically said everything he knows, he knows from his mother right. uh, and that you know, no one found believable. Um, but he did go on to say that, the, um, that it's in the child's best interest for, this, for Mr. Cox to be involved in his life. Uh, I would acknowledge that there's some 
It's light on findings of fact, but again, I think the court was looking at a temporary custody order when the court entered that order. Uh, but the, uh, the he, did, he did rely on the report of Ms. Craven Gatlin, in which she gave the background information. He did rely on the fact that Coda referred to, uh, sorry, the minor child referred to uh, Mr. Cox as his dad and to the lawsuit was filed that he believed it was his father. Um, and then only afterwards did the mom tell him that Cody, and this is, I think, important, that Cody blames the plaintiff for being tricked into believing he was his father and places zero blame on the defendant, again, going to the perception that that child has of, of Mr. Cox, which has been directly um, impacted by the mother. Um, I do, when you look at what the child said to Ms. Craven Gatlin, um, he came across as open to seeing his father again. He uh, said he never felt worried or scared with Mr. Cox, never disclosed inappropriate touching, um, told Ms. Gatlin that his mother told him Mr. Cox is being a victim and he has nothing in common with you. Um, Mr. Cox wants custody to, to take you away from me and when he gets it, you will never see me again. That's what that child believed when he talked to Ms. Gatlin. The mother took the child to Child Advocacy Center in Fayetteville in hopes of having criminal charges filed against uh, the, uh, Mr. Cox. In fact, uh, counsel for the mother uh, declared in open court one day that he would be getting a call shortly from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. That never happened. The, inf the investigation there told, uh, in which he told them to check for, with his mother for further information. Um, the child denied any touching or inappropriate conduct by Mr. Cox. The child came across as someone relaying a monologue or story. The child presented as being prepared for the interview. Uh, they determined not to move forward. Ms. Craven Gatlin's concern with the child seeing uh, Mr. Cox, and she did express a concern. Not that she felt that the child was at, in danger, but that the child's perception had been so manipulated by mother that he believes he's in danger based on what he's been told and now what he believes. That was Ms. Gatlin's concern. And when Judge McSweeney entered his order, he entered that with the idea, and you can tell it doesn't adjudicate all issues. It's with the idea of getting them back together, getting them to see each other, and get, letting the child get over whatever anxiety he may have over seeing Mr. Cox and visiting with Mr. Cox. The mother fostered and created this relationship between the child and Mr. Cox. And from the onset, she intended it to be permanent by her actions. That's all we need to see. Now she regrets and is trying to erase what she's put in this child heart. And the case law that has been handed down by this court says you can't do that. You've waived it to that party. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Uh, I want to answer a few of the panel's questions that were addressed um, to Mr. Foyles. Um, first, Mr. Uh, Judge McSweeney can't just clean up the best interest order um, by adding clear and convincing um, you know, language. Uh, he never heard that evidence. We never had the opportunity to put on that evidence in front of him. That Her constitutional rights had already been adjudicated years before the best interest uh, hearing. 
best interest hearing was held, the custody hearing was held in 2022. Uh, Mrs. Empson only had her chance to put on the evidence in front of Judge, Judge Bartholomew in 2020, two years before that. So it's not a matter of just vacating um, and, and adding uh, new. Could that have been appealed sooner? Uh, no, Your Honor. So uh, that was uh, what we initially looked at was, do we need to appeal this constitutional order um, there was actually cases from this court where uh, uh, litigants had tried that, and the, this court had actually dismissed the appeal because, a because there was the initial order that came out adjudicating the constitutional rights, but a custody order hadn't been entered. So although there's a finding on the constitutional right, the substantial right, the substantial right is not yet affected. So that's why we had to wait until a custody order. Do you know any of those cases off the top of your head? Or I didn't because they, they didn't they didn't result in published so opinions. So you're saying where we are now is there was a determination that you're, you're basically now appealing that determination from 2020. That this is our first opportunity because it's not enough just to prove a substantial rights at stake. You have to prove that it's affected. And it wasn't affected until the custody order um, was entered, which interfered with the parent-child relationship. Um, so it's not, an, the other one is, it's really, it's not, it's just an order denying a motion to dismiss and it doesn't, doesn't actually affect her rights at all. Um, so this was our first chance um, to finally bring that, that issue. You know, I, I'm happy to, to see if I can find those, um, those prior ones, but we would have had, I, frankly, I believe that we'd had to have had, filed a cert petition. I don't think that there would have been a, a right to an appeal uh, you, four if, years if ago. A, if you lose your paramounts, paramount status at some point in the past, can you regain it or is it just, does it just have to be a finding that at some point in the past she, she uh, waived her paramount interest uh, as, as the parent? This court's never addressed that question. I think that if, if, if the court were to, as far as I'm aware, the closest that I've seen was the McMaster case, which is an unpublished decision, but a case I argued here and um, Judge Airwood explained um, how inappropriate it was um, to find inconsistency in that case because at the time um, the complaint was filed, the natural parent was reasserting her rights over the child. So that's the most I've ever seen in any of this court's case law that, that, that tries to get at that question. Um, so that's a case that we've cited in our brief. I, I recognize that it's unpublished, but I, it's the closest. Now I think that we have a real constitutional problem uh, if, if, if there's one thing that happened in the past. I mean, we're essentially treating fit parents worse than we would treat unfit parents and abusers who can also, re who, who under, you know, in, under the DSS statutes, they can regain custody of their children, but we'd be saying a fit parent who's never done anything wrong to their child can't. And I think that that kind of standard doesn't make a lot of sense. I just wonder what happens, like if, if, the, if the mom says you're, that he's the dad, he's the dad, he's the dad for three years or two years or one year, where, where, when can, can the mother ever say, okay, he's not the dad and reassert that, I mean, at, at some point, is it, what's the test for that, I guess? No, I think maybe we, I'm not sure what the test would be. I, I think that we need to err on the side of the natural parent. They're the ones who have the, the paramount fundamental right here. It's not about protecting third parties. We need to err on the side of the law, and I don't know what the, I'm just trying to figure out what the law is, because if, if, if a mother says that when, when the child is born, this is the father, and I mean, you can tell the baby, this is your dad, I don't know. I don't know what point the, the father or the fetus would have some kind of rights um, because you because the mother's waived her, now, the, the paramount status and could the mother reclaim that at some point at the age of three five eight and ten I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is and i think this might have been a different case if mr cox had filed a custody complaint when they divorced but instead he there's a consent order where he chooses not to 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 pursue custody just like mrs Simpson um didn't pursue custody of of mr cox's children 
at that time. They both had children, um, and then they, they went their separate ways. Um, I wanted to point out a few things for the UCCJA. Um, Mr. Cox's counsel, the way I, I heard it today is essentially trying to challenge the findings of fact. Those findings of fact are quite clear about where the um, Mrs. Empson and the child are living. And I, I think the best place to look is record page 28, um, uh, paragraph, I believe it, it, it's 20, uh, paragraph 7, which says where she was sort of each month. It says she, she resided in North Carolina, Mrs. Empson did, until either January or February uh, of 2020. And then she stops residing here, right? Uh, whatever it is that the trial. That's paragraph 5. I'm sorry. So thank you, Your Honor. Um, uh, and I also want to go, go back to the issue of appealability. Um, so uh, we, of course, have the, the point that this is a permanent custody order. It's not temporary. Under Brewer v. Brewer and Maxwell versus, versus Maxwell, you have to have a reconvening time. You have, it, it, the order can't just continue indefinitely until it just, you know, some party shows up and, and sets it for hearing on permanent custody. Temporary custody order is supposed to be like a temporary restraining order, and a permanent custody order is supposed to be more like a preliminary injunction. That's, I mean, that's the standard that I believe those cases are, well, are trying this, to get at. This order clearly contemplated several different actions that were going to happen before there's another hearing. Reunification therapy and whatever, right? Uh, it, 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 this order is really whole in its, it, it did contemplate those actions, but the order is whole in itself because it, it sets a telephonic visitation schedule and it sets an unsupervised in-person visitation schedule. This was, I mean, obviously appealed it within 30 days. Yes, Your Honor. It's not like it hung around for a long time and people were operating under it for several years like <laughs> in the prior cases. No, but I mean, those cases are a little strange because I'm not sure when a, a case, I mean, the rules of appellate procedure say you have to file a notice of appeal within 30 days. It, it seems a little weird to s say that you wait till some, some, some indefinite amount of time and then you finally decide, well, no one's taking any action. I'm, now I'm going to file the notice of appeal. Well, but then the, I have a real those, appeal. The case has come up in the context of a modification or a, a hearing later because like we've had an order. We did it as a temporary order three years ago. Nobody did anything. Now are we doing a modification? Or are we doing, you know, because was that it called itself a temporary order, you know? Sure. That's where we get that. I'm just relying on the language of the case, saying that there has to be a reconvening time. Uh, I'm not aware of a case that says there must be a reconvening time. And I mean, I, I, I believe think the case is. It's a combination. It can have that in there, but it or or not. But you know, if the parties have a lot of them don't have a reconvening time, but like it, they've sort of, you know, they did a temporary, called it a temporary order, but then they operated under it for three years. Sure. Um, you know, it became that, but but I, I don't, you know, I, I just, if you've got a case that says there must be a reconvening time in an order, I, I, I screwed up a lot of orders when I was a family court judge. I, I, I do believe that that's what Brewer and Maxwell <laughs> say, that it can't continue indefinitely, and then there also be the lack of a reconvening time. Brewer, I think, is it Brewer? I think Brewer and Maxwell. Uh, Your Honor, which is cited in our response to the motion to dismiss. Uh, but that's not even our primary basis for appealability. Our primary basis is uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a temporary custody order, because that's what this court held in Graham versus Jones, and that's what this court held just recently in Manus versus Cornegate. It doesn't matter even whether it's a temporary custody order. And in a third-party custody case, uh, the custody order na necessarily affects um, the natural parent's constitutional rights. That's the end of the discussion. That's exactly what happened in Graham. The court in Graham said, well, it's a, we don't think it, under Brewer, we don't think it's a temporary custody order, but even if it were, it clearly affects a, cons, uh, a substantial right. So I think that the appealability is actually quite an easy question 
um, under under those two cases and Cornegay, um, of course, Emmanuel versus Cornegay being one of the most recent. Um, I heard um, my friend on the other side um, talk a lot about what Ms. Craven Gatling said, but I, I would commend to the court um, DOCX pages 952 to 953, um, where we know exactly what um, Mrs. Craven Gatling said. She said, at this time, Cody has a negative view of Mr. Cox and feels that he would be in significant danger um, were he to have contact with Mr. Cox in the future. Forcing a child to have contact with someone that they deem as unsafe would likely be psychologically damaging, barring therapeutic intervention to address the concerns. Uh, these interventions would have to be agreed upon, initiated, and supported by both parties, which does not appear to be attainable at this time. Based on the current circumstances, including the length of time since the child last had contact with Mr. Cox, the child's altered sense of safety related to Mr. Cox, the child's perception, distorted perceptions of Mr. Cox, as well as the lengthy litigation process, there would be significant risk of further psychological harm if Mr. Cox is awarded visitation and or custody of the child. And while it's acknowledged these factors are subsequent to the child's estrangement from Mr. Cox, reintroducing the relationship, especially given that it's likely to contribute to continued litigation, would not be beneficial to Cody's overall functioning. That was the evidence that was put forward at the best interest hearing. Your Honor asked whether there's any findings of any benefit to this child. There was no findings of any benefit to the child because there's no evidence of any benefit to the child that was ever offered to the, the trial court. It doesn't matter if, if there was a parent-child relationship that existed four years ago um, between um, Mr. Cox and this child. The question is, what's going to serve the child's best interest prospectively going forward? I see I'm out of, out of time, um, but if I can just conclude, I believe what's in the best interest of this child and all the parties is for them to continue uh, to move on with their lives. And we'd ask that this court reverse uh, for any or all the grounds that we've raised today and or that this case uh, be dismissed. Thank you for your arguments. We'll take it under advisement. Thank you, Your Honor.